Normally, I have to work a bit on preparing an introduction that makes the subject relevant and important and uh, current. So today, my introduction is just one word that does all that, sex. Job done, right? (laughs) So we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph, who becomes the example the New Testament looks at when it talks about how to walk out a perverse culture well when it comes to these things. So here's the story. I'll back up for those that are new. We've been in Genesis for about a year. Genesis divides up into pretty much three chunks. All the nations, chapter one through 11, Abraham and his uh, two sons, Abraham, his son, grandson, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's to chapter 35. And now we enter in, Esau's right in the middle, chapter 36. Now we enter into the last section, which is Joseph. And Joseph, to me, gives the one hope. Those other two sections, you see the brokenness of humanity, that the carriers of the promise are actually part of the problem, and it's really sad. So chapter 37 through 50 gives a little bit of a glint of, hey, there might be hope of a ruler that comes and brings things and makes it right. So that's the hope. We'll get to that. So what we found last week as we met Joseph is he's actually growing quite crooked underneath the favoritism of his father. So he's now a tattletale. He is um, arrogant. He's maybe a sociopath that does not understand how his words hurt people because he keeps saying the same words that hurt people over and over and over again. All right? So he's growing very crooked. His dad makes some mistakes doesn't hide his favoritism. In fact, advertises his favoritism, gives him a fancy coat. So all of his brothers are in Carhartts and dad, Jacob, gives Joseph an Armani coat. It's pretty obvious. And his older brothers don't like that. And then to make matters worse, Joseph wears this coat everywhere he goes because it's an Armani. So he's sent out to the desert to look after his brothers. It's 104, and guess what he's wearing? The coat, because it's Armani. Come on, he's that guy. We all know a guy like that. He's that dude. Brothers don't like him. Put him in a pit, sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and in Egypt, he is bought by a very powerful man named Potiphar, a high government official, okay? So it'd be like this. Joseph grew up on a farm, tribal, just with his family, all of a sudden he's transplanted out of that environment to Egypt, which is the most cosmopolitan city ever at that time. They're building pyramids, they've got the Sphinx, they're big time. It would be like taking an Amish kid from Ohio and then plopping him straight down into Las Vegas. Culture shock, right? What's gonna happen to him? He'll start wearing his hat backwards and waking up at 5.30 a.m., just just rebel, right? So you've got now this culture clash that you start seeing. So how is this rural farm kid going to respond to a very metropolitan, advanced, uh, sinful society? What's he gonna do? Well, what we find really quickly is he exchanges his Armani coat for a construction vest 
and works his tail off. And he works and works and works. And because of that, Potiphar just starts to advance him, advance him, advance him, until he becomes the COO of Potiphar's empire. So he's the chief operating officer. Everything goes through him. Brilliant. So it seems like we're like, okay, the story has a happy ending. Mm, Not so fast. Let's pick up the story right in verse six. Genesis 39, verse six. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Whoop-dee. Here comes the clash. Here comes the problem. So we learn very quickly that Joseph is a very attractive young man, right? It says that he is handsome in form and appearance. It means he's good looking and he has abs, not an ab, right? So he is athletic and he is attractive. He's well-built, he's at the gym, he's got muscles. He's a 20-year-old, muscular, handsome guy. I remember at 20, I used to wonder what it'd be like to have muscles. It's so nice to finally know. (laughs) So you got this. He's just this stallion of a young man. In verse seven, we learn Mrs. Potiphar is a cougar who's on the hunt. And one commentary says this. It says that when she says, lie with me, literally it's, Sex now. You have sex with me now. Get in the bed, have sex now. And she's his boss, right? She's his owner. So we'll look at this when we get to this on Wednesday. And she is a perfect case of how to grow lust. She's varsity on it. So she just gets in there, eyes, all this stuff. The book of Proverbs says that it's this kind of person, this kind of woman, in this case, that leads young men to hell. Young men follow her and they're like, man, it's getting hot. Yeah, just keep going. It's getting really hot. Yeah, just keep going. Be careful. All right? So so we have this situation set up, probably one of the oldest temptations that has existed, right? Sexual temptation. You've got this ancient hard temptation, number one in all of culture, and Joseph brilliantly makes it through. This 
Amish kid out of Iowa comes into Vegas and is not conformed to it. It's brilliant, right? He was broken, no doubt, chapter 37, has his problems, no doubt, but we can learn some great wisdom from him. And at some point, or most likely already, you will face sexual temptation. It's gonna come for you. Okay. Maybe not like Joseph. Joseph has a woman throw himself at him. He's that kind of guy. I've never had that personally. Never had women throw themselves at me. I guess I'm not handsome and form in appearance, which is fine with me, you know, protects me from that. But Joseph was the kind of guy that girls threw themselves at. So you may not have that level, but at some level, there will be sexual temptation. So how do we then, as people who say, our allegiance is to a different kingdom, not to Vegas, how do we walk out sexual temptation well. Well, I think Joseph gives us the wisdom. Why don't you notice the one thing he does? He does one thing, and then he gives three reasons why he did it. But the one thing he does, it's verse eight. But he refused. What's the one thing he does? No. (laughs) Lie with me now. No. Let me elaborate on that. Joseph says, No, that's it. No, no. And the deck was stacked against him. He's a slave. She's his boss. Essentially, she's telling him it's a power thing. You'll do this. You'll obey me. I own you. That's what she's saying. He also says no to all the excuses that he could have used all the extenuating circumstances that makes his case different from the rest of civilization, right? He could have said, well, I am a slave and I should just obey. And she has my life and my success and my career in her hands. So this is just the way it is. So I guess I gotta do this. He says no to that. He says no to, I've worked really hard. I've been doing so well. And life has been so unfair to me. I was ripped from my family, sold into slavery. You know what? I deserve this. I've earned this. I found in counseling with people, sometimes when they're thrown into a pit and life has been unfair to them, there's this thing that happens where they start acting out in dirty ways. It's like you get in the pit and you act dirty. It becomes an excuse. Not for Joseph. He doesn't use that excuse. He doesn't say... Everybody else is doing it. And if you read about Egyptian culture in 1800 BC, oh man, that, that's the norm. Like this woman, Mrs. Potiphar, is not saying anything that wasn't happening everywhere. So he could have been like, everybody else is doing it. Why not? But he didn't. He didn't say, well, if it's wrong, why does it feel so right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Mr. Potiphar is a jerk. He doesn't treat her the way she should be treated. He's never here. In fact, I think he's been unfaithful to her. Yeah, I'm gonna do this. He doesn't use any of those. Joseph just says no. There will always be extenuating circumstances, but they never make a wrong right, period. Joseph just says no. And you know why he was able to do this? You know why he passes this test? Because he knew the answer to the test before he walked into the exam. He knew, I'm not doing that. 
He'd already made his decision. He'd already decided that. And so when the test came, he already knew the answer, no. That's how you ace these tests. But Matt, temptation is so hard. It's not that easy. I disagree. I think when you do what Joseph did here and just say no, period, it actually makes life a lot easier. That when you have non-negotiables in your life where you say no, never, it actually makes life easier. I'll try to prove it. So for the majority of us in here, we already have a non-negotiable. If we left here today and we get out to our car and some guy approaches us with a little brown bag and he tries to sell us black tar heroin, what are we going to do? Are we going to be like, hmm, you know, I have heard people that have done that. They say it's wild and it feels really good and I've had like an achy leg lately. Hmm, maybe I ought to try that. I do like to poke needles in my arm, so, you know, this kind of works. No, you just say, no, I don't do that. It's a non-negotiable. You don't have to process it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to give excuses for it. You just, no, non-negotiable. That's Joseph. No, non-negotiable. And because he had the answer to the test before he walked into it, he aced it. No, that's all Joseph does. But then he gives us three reasons why he says no. And I think they're really good reasons. Reasons as Christ followers, as those that say, hey, our allegiance is to a different kingdom. We need to think through these three reasons because they're right. The first reason is this. Verses eight and nine. What does he say? Not mine. Mr. Potiphar has entrusted everything of yours to me. Everything, with one exception. You. You're not mine. Joseph knew something. He knew this, that adultery and fornication is stealing what does not belong. Adultery and fornication is stealing what does not belong to you. You are not mine, period. Now, where did Joseph get this idea? I think it tracks back to Genesis chapter two, verse 24, where that text just says this. It says that Adam and Eve, the first couple, when they got married, the two became one. That there was a union there, physically, no doubt, but also much deeper than that. That the two different people become one new kind of person that's brilliant and united. And if you follow the Bible, it begins to expand on what marriage is, and it culminates, if you want to know a biblical view on sex and marriage, Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. It's, the, it's where it's all kind of clumped together. It culminates there. And here's what happens in that chapter. Corinth, a highly sexualized culture. They had this temple where a thousand virgins would go out every night from that temple. Highly sexualized culture. And in that culture, they had a proverb. And the proverb said this, and I'll just make it modern. Sex is like steak. What that meant was this. All of us have these appetites, these desires. We get thirsty, we grab a drink of water. We get hungry, what do we do? Eat, right? No one's gonna say to you, hey man, I'm hungry. I think I'm gonna go get a steak. No one's gonna say, hold it there, buddy. Whoa, slow down. You need to make sure that is the right steak. You need to talk 
to the farmer that grew that steak and make sure you agree with the way that he raised that steak. And before you sample that steak, you need to have 100% commitment to that steak. No one's gonna say that, right? It's silly. No, I'm hungry, I eat. I'm thirsty, I drink. And when I wanna have sex, I have sex. It's just another in the list of lusts or appetites that every person has. And just like I'm hungry, I'm gonna eat. If I wanna have sex, I'm gonna have sex any way that I want it. That's Corinth. That was their proverb. I think that's a lot like our culture today. In fact, our vocabulary betrays us. Because uh, places where singles are on the, I wouldn't even say singles anymore. Places where people are on the hunt, (laughs) you know, the gym, the club, the bar, church. What do we call those places now? Meat markets. Look what is available and advertised. How do you like your sex? How do you like your steak? Same thing, right? That's culture today. We're exactly like Corinth. C.S. Lewis has this essay on that kind of sex. And he says this, he says, when you do that, that's like eating and then vomiting up after you're done. That when you don't say, this thing is gonna become a part of me and oneness is gonna happen out of this, but instead you are actually regurgitating that thing and, and, and divorcing yourself from that person, it's like vomiting, it's like bulimia. It destroys who you are. It's a brilliant essay, you can look it up. And I tend to agree with him that you violate your essence when you view sex like steak. You violate the way that you're supposed to be, that something happens. The Old Testament uses this word dode in the Hebrew. And dode means the intermingling of souls, that something happens in sex where your essence is poured into her and her essence is poured into you. And you can't escape that. It's always there. There's an essence. And if it's not committed and not long-term, then there's a ripping back apart. It's vomit. So here, rightly, Joseph says, not mine. I won't do that violence to you. And I won't allow that violence to be done to me. And if you don't believe me on this, I have tons of books from not a Christian perspective that look at people that have engaged in this kind of activity and it says the same thing. You can read Girls in Sex, Peggy Ornstein's book. I read it, it was the most, it's one of those books that you just cry, I just cried. For these young girls that have engaged in this kind of activity and now they're a little bit older, they're saying, something's ruined in me. Like I can't quite connect the way I'm supposed to connect with people. And it breaks my heart. Not mine, not mine. If you go back to Genesis two, right there verse 24, the two become one, it says this, they were naked and unashamed. All right, so they get married, they're naked and unashamed. What does that mean? Does it mean that for months before their wedding, they'd gone to CrossFit? No shame. Paleo diet? No. What it means is this, that there was something that happened and the way that they could communicate with each other that allowed them to be naked with each other, open with each other, unashamed of who they were right? It's in a committed relationship called marriage that it's safe enough for me to say what I need to say to my wife and for my wife to say what she needs to say to me. We're not afraid like, well, if I say that, maybe he'll, he'll leave me. Or, or if, I, if I tell her that, maybe she'll take off. It's only in a committed relationship where you say, we're in this period that two people can be 100% naked and unashamed. I'll tell you everything. 
because I won't scare you off because I know you are in this for the long run. And I'm telling you, relationships only thrive in that environment because marriage, I've said this before, marriage is the first reality show, is it not? I mean, it's crazy. You take two people, one of them gets hopped up on hormones once a month. The other one is always hopped up on hormones, right? From two very diverse backgrounds. One of them is like, well, in my house, man, we had, I just dropped my towel wherever I wanted to. And uh, the towel fairy would come and take it up. In this house, there is no towel fairy. You're the towel fairy, right? You got all those kind of things. And it's like, if there's not commitment saying we will make this work no matter what, you're out. It's only the safety of commitment where this stuff works, where you say we can be naked and unashamed here. And now we have all these verbs and all these nouns and all this way of looking at marriage that's so wrong. People saying, well, she wasn't my soulmate. I hate that one. Hate it. it. Soulmate's never in the Bible, by the way. Never. There's no such thing as a soulmate. If you're searching for your soulmate, you'll find him or her riding a unicorn being led by Oompa Loompas. If you see that, okay, but you won't. I know Charity is my soulmate because I'm married to her, period. And we are in this for the long haul, no matter what. And I am safe and she is safe. And we can share and we can grow and we can be changed into what God wants us to be because it's safe and it's committed. So he's saying, not mine. If you keep reading after 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7 says something that in ancient literature, there's nothing comparable. It says this, when you get married, listen, your body belongs to your spouse. Husband, your body belongs to your wife. And wife, your body belongs to your husband. You don't belong to each other yourself anymore. We think marriage is about getting a wife or getting a husband. No way. Biblical marriage is about giving yourself to somebody else. But I belong to them now. And it's brilliant when that happens. All the selfishness and all the weird games, they disappear. And it's safe and it's right and you grow and it's beautiful. And Joseph understands that when he says, not mine. No, no, because you're not mine. Secondly, right after that, you're not mine. And then he says, he adds the second reason why he says no, because you are his wife. You're his wife. Joseph here upholds the centuries and centuries and millennia of the sacredness of marriage. Now you look at any history of any civilization throughout any time, the exceptions are rare. 99% of the time, there'd be in that civilization at that time, a sacredness to marriage, except for the last 50 years because something's happened. And here's how I heard explained the best. Everybody knows about inflation, right? So we have a piece of paper that has some green ink on it. And we have decided that piece of paper with that green ink on it, it's valuable, even though it's really not. We've decided that because there is something around that piece of paper called the Federal Reserve who says we will maintain and protect the value of this piece of paper. And as long as they maintain and protect the value of that paper, we exchange it for goods and it works. 
But there are certain countries where that value didn't remain and they go into what's called hyperinflation. Just Google Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe was in years and years, they're just now starting to pull out of it, years and years of what was called hyperinflation. And what happened was money just became worthless. They had for a while a $100 trillion bill. Can you imagine that? Like how, how many zeros are on that thing? There's covered in zeros because their hyperinflation was so out of control. On Monday, with your $100 trillion bill, you could buy a BMW. On Tuesday, you could just buy bread. And on Wednesday, you used to start a fire. That's how fast their money was being devalued. And so they kept having to make bigger and bigger and bigger money. That's inflation. Well, sex, it's kind of like that. That God has this thing called intimacy. And I'll just, I'm not even going to the Bible here. I'll just go to history. God has this thing called intimacy. And intimacy, in order for intimacy to maintain its value, he, like the Federal Reserve, has put protections around it. So you go throughout history, there's always been this thing in civilizations. Men, number one, want intimacy. It's true. Number two, there was always in, hist in history, in civilizations, some parameters that a man had to do before he could be intimate, right? Get a job, go on a quest, build a house. There was always something that said, okay, man, you are now ready to be married and be intimate. That's been forever. In, in, in America, for most of our history, it was, hey, get a job, shave, stop wearing those kind of clothes, wear this kind of clothes, no coonskin cap for you anymore, right? Do something different. Don't do those things. Do these things. Okay, you're ready to get married. Well, all that changed in the 1960s. It's called the sexual revolution. And we are still reaping the whirlwind of the seed sown in the 1960s. Because in the 1960s, there was all these streams that came together. Uh, the culture was changing. Um, Christianity was, was diminishing its influence. It was becoming liberalized. So our idea of marriage was changing as well. Uh, the pill came in right then. You have all these streams that came together and all of them together mixed into this thing called the sexual re revolution. And essentially it said this, hey men, you don't have to do anything anymore. You can have intimacy for free. You don't have to step up. You don't have to do anything. There's, there's no hindrances anymore. The protections around intimacy dissolved. And now, hey, have sex freely. So essentially it became like this. Men could act like slobs and women could act like men. And that's the new economy. If you're a young man saying, hey, that doesn't sound too bad to me. Are you sure? Because what has happened to our culture is to me devastating. So I'll, take, I'll just use my family. We're now getting into the second generation of the sexual revolution. So my dad, mom, product of the 1960s. Dad, I can have intimacy without having to do anything. Father's myself, my two brothers, my little sister, and then just says, I'm going somewhere else because I don't want that responsibility. I'm gonna find intimacy wherever I want to. So he does that, leaves us, when what we needed was him to be a dad and a provider and a leader and a mentor and to affirm us and to guide us and help us. But he says, no way, I don't have to do that. And instead, if you look at my family, there's a lot of running over that's happened. So the new economy is men act like slobs, women act like men, and the kids get run over. If you go to a school today, most teachers will tell you kids are getting run over. What has happened now 
because we're now in the second generation of this failure, kids are getting run over. They're not being raised with loyalty, with the intimacy having value to it. And instead, they're struggling. And so Proverbs 5 says this, when that happens, the good thing, what was supposed to be marriage is in Eden, dining with your bride, eating fruit becomes, literally it says there, sewage in a street. That's the metaphor they use. So what's supposed to be this beautiful, life-giving thing now has become corrosive and caustic and destructive, and it's a bummer. That's inflation. Intimacy has been devalued. And the kids, our culture is the product of that. I think in the church, we should be those that defend the sacredness of marriage. That when we talk about it, when we look at engagements, when we look at every aspect of marriage, we should be defending it, saying, "Uh uh-uh, this is a sacred thing that God instituted on page two. And if it is devalued, the core of what is culture and structure dissolves. And throughout all civilization, everywhere, people have had it except for us now. So maybe we're wrong. So in the church, we should say, we absolutely 100% defend the institution of marriage. And if you're young in here and you're saying, well, we're engaged and we're almost married so we can have sex. I would say to you, where else does almost work? Everyone has said horseshoes and hand grenades. Okay, where else besides horseshoes and hand grenades does almost work? Right, I almost invested in Apple stock 20 years ago. Yeah, but you didn't. So get back in your dots and then go home. <laughs> right? That doesn't work. I almost bought that home. Yeah, but you didn't. Somebody else did it. I almost got a touchdown. Yeah, you didn't. You fumbled on the one-yard line. We almost won the game, right? But you lost. Almost doesn't work. God has a very simple system. Protect intimacy. Get married. Then Celebrate. And when that's followed out right, something brilliant happens in your soul. Something incredible happens because you know love is patient and lust is not. And that person is worth waiting for. And I will wait for them and do it right. And God honors that. And it's brilliant and beautiful. And we should be those inside these walls that say we defend the sacredness of marriage. Okay. And the last thing he says Maybe my my most favorite, maybe the power behind all this, listen to what he says. No, not mine, his wife. And then how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It looks like it's sex with a woman. No. Joseph says, I would be sinning against God. Here's what Joseph knows. In chapter 39, if you read through it, like markers, four times, it says this about Joseph. God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. And the last time it says, God's hased was with him. Hased is the strongest to me Hebrew word that tries to declare what God feels about us. It's his covenant, faithful, unbreakable, unimaginable love for us. That was with Jacob, excuse me, Joseph. 
So Joseph here, when he looks at this thing, he goes, yeah, no, you're not mine. Marriage matters, but more important than that, I've got God and I won't sin against him. Joseph was filled with something better than what the temptress could ever offer. And because of that, her temptation was made weak. I got God. I got God. I'm not gonna sin against him. I love him too much. And he loves me too much. And that was the power behind his no. Maybe it's like this. I have a lust in my life. It's been a lifelong lust. That lust is for ice cream. You thought I was gonna scandalize you, huh? <laughs> and it's a generational problem because my mom loved ice cream. She, in fact, had a freezer in our garage. She put a padlock on it and would put the ice cream in there. It was Lucerne ice cream, which isn't the best, but still, it was ice cream. And the reason why she put the lock on there was not so much that, so that we couldn't get it, it was so that she could have some. It's a generational sin. So you can ask my wife, I will go on these kicks where I'll be, I'm not eating sugar for a year. But if there's ice cream in my home, the gremlin comes out at midnight and I'm just eating ice cream. Like it just, it doesn't matter. I can't, it's one of those things. I can't do it. So here's what I found. The only way that I can defeat my lust for ice cream is if I get full on something better. That if I'll fill myself up with something good, then the passion and lust I have for ice cream is diminished. So I found I fully forget about ice cream if I've eaten one or two chocolate bars. <laughs> Dark chocolate is good for you, I'm telling you. It's health food. That's what he's saying right here. Are you kidding? You don't have anything to offer me. I'm full on God's chesed. Are you kidding me? No. No, I don't want that. The temptress was weakened because Joseph had grown strong in his walking with God. And he would not violate that relationship for something like that. His, his if you would, relational budget was right. Augustine called it disordered loves, that whenever you get a love that's out of order, it can be love for family, love for money, love for power, whatever. When you get, ever you get a disordered love, your life is put into chaos. You go bankrupt. But when you order your loves correctly, God, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. It's right. Joseph got that. We live in such a self-absorbed, narcissistic society now. Rarely do we bring into other people are into the equation when we make decisions. We're not thinking like, how would this hurt Jesus? How would this harm his kingdom? What would this do for his reputation? Does this make Jesus look beautiful? What does this do to his creation, his sons and his daughters? Rarely do we do that anymore. That's what Joseph's doing right here. I'm not gonna hurt my king this way. I would never sin against God that way. His kingdom is what matters for me. I know whenever I teach this message on lust, when it comes up in the Bible, there's always people sitting in the seats that are like, oh, I feel so guilty and ashamed and terrible right now. Is that what you're trying to do to me? No. Twice in the New Testament, 
there are stories about Jesus encountering women who had been sexually loose. The first one is John chapter four. Jesus actually changes the way he was going in order to route his, his travels to a well where he would meet this woman who'd been married five times and the man she was now living with was not her husband. She was committing fornication. And he meets with her there, this woman who had this lust, obviously, this problem, and he says this to her, listen, if you drink from this well, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. What was he talking about there? Is he talking about water? No. Sweetie, you keep dipping into the well of men, thinking it's the next one that's gonna make you happy, and they don't. And you're just getting drier and drier and drier. Drink of me, and I will satisfy that part of your soul. I'll reorder your loves so that you can live life rightly. That's what he's saying. And then four chapters later in chapter eight, he's teaching just like this. And a woman just caught in adultery, naked, is thrown right in front of him. And the people that threw her there said, we caught her in adultery. And the law says she must be stoned. What say you, Jesus? And you know the story. Jesus bows down and begins to do something, draw or do something in the dirt. What does he do in the dirt? Nobody knows. I asked my daughters one time and Carissa said, I think he drew a horse. <laughs> Possibly, I don't know. It may have been a scary horse because what happened is all the men, it says, from the oldest to the youngest started dropping their stones and they walked away and Jesus looked at this woman and said, where are your accusers? And she says, they're all gone. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, was Jesus saying that? Like, go and sin no more. No, he just said, I'm not condemning you. He's saying, listen, you've just met the one that can reorder your life and set you free and fill you. So you stop being a slave to these lusts. If you read Genesis 39, who's the slave in Genesis 39? Mrs. Potiphar. Joseph is the freest person in the book and he's the slave. Mrs. Potiphar is a slave to this thing. She's probably done it to many slaves and she's a slave to it now. She's enslaved to it. Jesus is saying, I'll set you free. I'll set you free. You can go and sin no more. My hope and my prayer with this message was yes, to get wisdom because the Bible's full of wisdom. Joseph saying no. He knew the answer before he took that test. This does not belong to me. I'm not gonna steal. I'm, I'm holding up the sacredness of marriage but the power on it, the power, the power is I'm full on him. And because I'm full on him, every temptation loses its power. My hope and prayer is as we take the cup, as we take the body, that that thirst in us that can drive us to do things that are destructive gets filled. As we take the bread that we'd see his brokenness, that he loved us that much. Our king loved us that much. And I can't sin against my king that loves me that much. That we go out from here full, empowered, that weak temptations would be seen for what they are, weak temptations. 
because we've experienced the best. We're full. So Jesus, may you fill hungry vessels this day. I pray for those in this room who have not walked out well and feel like there are rocks being thrown at them. I pray that just like in John chapter eight, as they eat and as they drink, the rocks would fall and they would hear from you, I don't condemn you, be free, go, sin no more. For those like the woman at the well who keep dipping into these things that never satisfy. It's like drinking salt water just makes them thirstier and thirstier. I pray that as they take the cup of the new kingdom, the new covenant, that Jesus, you would fill them so they do not thirst anymore. Do what only you can do. Your word tells us that in your presence is fullness of joy. You are with Joseph. Be with us. Fill us. Satisfy us. Protect us. Be the king for us that we need and desire, I pray. May we eat and may we drink of strength. And I ask this in your name. Amen.